there is treasure. Not money, not dollars, not oil, but Christ, Christ Jesus. We stand on the teaching of the apostles. We don't need a new revelation. No, thank you. Jesus calling. No, thank you. Jesus has called us in his book. The shack. No, thank you. We don't need the heavens for real. We don't need new revelation. We need apostolic teaching. Train yourself in confidence. Put the phone away. You have been spending too much time in your phone. That will not help you to be more godly. Computer, hobbies, movies, put away because these things will not help you to grow in God. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 4. And I hope that once we are done with the sermons in verses 1 through 4, you will have memorized this, at least the first four verses. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You may be seated. Let us pray once again. Lord, we, we pray not out of ritual or out of tradition. We pray because we are needy. And prayer is your means for us to humble ourselves and ask you to help us. So right now, help us. We ask you. We beg you. We cry out to you, Lord. We, we cannot do what we are about to do on our own strength. This is a supernatural work. This is a supernatural activity. And we need your Holy Spirit to help us. Help me to be faithful. Help me to worship you as I'm preaching. And help the congregation to worship you as they are listening. Help us to leave this place more like Jesus Christ. I pray that the preaching would enlarge our hearts with affection for Jesus. So please, Lord, help us. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Some time ago, uh, I remember reading an article. And this article was talking about this family that became millionaire 
overnight. And the article said $300,000. $300,000. That's how much a guy named Coomer makes each month from an oil well that he drilled in his own backyard. Now, the Fairchild, you guys have a big property there. <laughs> now, imagine drilling in that backyard. Or some of us, we say smaller backyard, they could never imagine. And you start drilling, and suddenly you're making $300,000 every month. Right under your nose, there was a massive treasure that you could never have expected. Similarly, there are treasures of God in hidden places, in places that you could never have expected. And usually, the salutations or the greetings of Paul are these places, not the backyard, but the front yard. And my goal here this last Lord's Day, today, and the next Lord's Day, is just for us to set our equipment right here in the front yard of Titus and drill in this fertile soil because there is treasure. Not money, not dollars, not oil, but Christ, Christ Jesus. So I pray that the Lord will help us as we are drilling here to see more and more of the glory of our Savior. And we're going to continue the, what we started last Lord's Day. You're going to continue looking at the greeter, his name, his identity. And today we're going to move to his calling and the purpose of his calling, verses 1 through 3. I just want to remind you, that's important, that verses 1 through 4 of Titus chapter 1, it's going to set the tone for the whole letter. It's like a, an orchestra, a symphony, and you have these major keys, these major tones that are going to be played throughout the letter. And the key words, they're going to be played throughout this glorious symphony are notes such as faith, godliness, hope, eternal life, Savior, salvation, revealing, appearing. All the words that we find right in the beginning here, it's as if Paul is preparing us for what's to come. And that's why I want to spend some time with us in these first four verses so we are ready as we start digging through the rest of the book. We have already established the foundation of what Paul is about to teach us here. We saw last Lord's Day that the greeter is Paul. Remember, ancient letters is different from our letters where we leave our name to the bottom that would be the first thing they would place was the name of the one who is sending that letter. And he saw that his name is Paul. He was also known as Saul. He had two or three names as a Jewish man with a Roman citizenship. And we know that his name changed from Saul, the Hebrew name, to Paul as he starts his journey into the Gentile territory. And there is this change. Now he starts using his Roman name. And he's well known first because being the greatest persecutor of the church. 
We think about ISIS. Paul would be leading ISIS in his persecution of the church. Until one day when the grace of God appeared to him. And when the grace appeared to Paul, it seized him. It took hold of him. And that's why then he identifies himself as the doulos, the slave of God. Paul, a slave of God. I was captured. I became a trophy of his grace and his mercy. And now he is a slave of God. As a slave of Christ, Paul has no personal autonomy. Totally, completely devoted to his master, Jesus Christ. And we, like Paul, are also slaves. Those who have been saved here, you are a slave of God. You do not belong to your own self. You belong to Christ who bought you. And I praise the Lord for a church of slaves that we have here. And there Paul moves to tell us that he's a slave, but he's a slave with a, a very specific calling. Slaves have different, different tasks that they would be accomplishing. So he had some slaves who would be in charge of the education of kids. Other slaves would be in charge of medicine, in charge of the kitchen. Paul is called by God to be a slave. It's a special task to be an apostle. And he saw that an apostle is the one who is sent with the authority of the one who is sending him. So Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning that his office comes from Jesus. All his words are coming from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord of his mission. And we also need to remember that to be an apostle had nothing of prestige and glory. Actually, was your death sentence. To be an apostle of Jesus was a public declaration that you would suffer just like the one who sent you. So that's what we saw last Lord's Day. So let's continue today as we move to the next part of this verse 1 where Paul now starts to develop the purpose of his calling. He's a slave, he's an apostle, and now he's going to tell us the purpose, why God called him to be an apostle, a slave and an apostle. So he says, look at verse 1 in your Bibles. Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake, that's the ESV, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Paul is saying that he was created and recreated by God to serve the faith of God's people. You see, for the sake of... The NIV, I like how the NIV translate, captures the idea here. It says the NIV has to further the faith of God's elect. Meaning that Paul was commissioned by Jesus Christ to serve the faith of God's elect. But what is the faith? The Bible has two uses for the terminology, the faith. So sometimes the faith is used for a body of doctrine. So sometimes the, the sound gospel is called the faith. And I want to show you by looking, look in chapter 1, look at verse 13. Paul says, 
This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He's not saying sound in faith, but sound in the faith, sound in the gospel. So sometimes the faith can mean just the content of what we believe, that is the gospel. So for example, Jude tells us that he was, he was going to write about something else, but then he was urged to write that church to contend for what? The faith. What is to contend for the faith? It's not to fight for faith. It's to fight for the gospel. The faith, therefore, can mean the gospel. A summary of all we believe. But here in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Titus, that's not the meaning. The meaning is faith believing. It would be the verb to believe, to trust. Paul was called by Jesus to preach the gospel. And by preaching the gospel, he was God's instrument in producing the faith and maintaining, strengthening the faith of God's people. So it's a pastoral charge. He needs to be watching, taking care of the faith of God's people. Remember that I said that sometimes familiarity causes us to miss the, the glory and the beauty of certain words. And faith is one of those words that we use frequently. You need to believe, faith, faith. But what is faith? What is to believe? When you go to the Old Testament, the first use of the, the verb to believe is in, in Genesis 15. And Abraham believed God. The verb aman, can you, can you see where it's leading us? Aman, amen, amen. That's the verb, aman. And has the idea of agreeing with something, affirming something. So when we say amen, we are taking ownership, we're embracing, we are agreeing. So when somebody's praying or somebody's preaching and you say amen, you are embracing that. You say, that is true, that's my conviction. Or that's my prayer also. You're taking ownership of what is being said. So to believe is to amen to what God has said and has done. One scholar says, biblical faith is in fact agreement with what God is doing. It's not just intellectual assessment. It's ownership of what God is doing. When I believe in or put my faith in Jesus Christ, I actually agree and own or make my own what God has done, is doing, and promised to do in Christ for me. That's what you believe is. To embrace, take hold, take possession of the promise of God in Christ Jesus. So to amen is much more than just a simple verbal statement. It's to take ownership. It's to commit yourself. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 27, Moses and, and the Levites, they are reading of the curses of the law. And it's interesting that the people say, Amen. All the people say, Amen. And what they are doing is that they are committing themselves to reject a sinful lifestyle. So when they're saying, Amen, they are embracing God's promise, and at the same time, they're declaring, Be far from us to walk in a sinful way. 
So every time you believe in God's promise, every time you say amen to God's promise, there is this dual aspect of embracing Christ and rejecting sin and the world. That's why, brothers and sisters, faith and repentance are inseparable. That's why faith and repentance are inseparable. That's why it's ridiculous to say that you can have Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord of your life. That makes no sense. As if you can just believe and not change your life. Faith and repentance walk hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. So when you believe necessarily, you must be repenting. I love what Marshall and Toner, they write about Paul's statement here. They say, basically, Paul, as apostle, is charged with the task of promoting and furthering the faith of God's people, the elect. And then they say, it includes evangelism, but goes beyond this to developing the faith of Christians through the teaching of correct doctrine, sound doctrine. It's not just preaching so people believe, but actually it's continue the preaching so that faith remains solid. They go on to say, the notion of salvation in the elect concept must be taken in the widest sense to include not simply entry into salvation, but also the working out of and the maintaining of salvation in the context of membership in God's people. So the apostles' ministry is by def definition concerned with the entire process of salvation. What is he saying here? He's saying that when Paul says that his sole calling to be an apostle is to further, is for the sake of the faith of God's people. He's saying that his whole life is devoted for the life of God's people. You see, sometimes we think that believing is just the first step. The Christian life is a life by faith. We die in faith. So th what that means that for Paul, his ministry... It's the whole life of the church. Because we don't stop believing. We don't stop having faith. You see, sometimes we pray so much and we force so much the gospel in a person. And then when that person believes, we're like, oh, good. And then we let go. We must continue. Continue nurturing that faith. That was, that's one of the problems with big evangelisms. And, and you, you remember... Uh, People go and they have those crusades and, and then you have thousands of people accepting Jesus. Then what? And then what? Who is taking care of their faith? Who is nurturing that faith? So that's Paul's calling. That's why he's constantly, even the church that he planted, he's always looking back, concerned with the faith of God's people. And so should we. Now Paul moves to tell us as this, the faith that he is called to take care is the faith of God's elect, the electus of God. So it's fascinating how Paul not only identifies himself, but he's identifying the church too. He, he's giving the identity of the church as God's elect. And we are God's chosen ones because what? God chose us. We are God's chosen ones, not because we chose God, but because He chose us. As Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. 
We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. And I have met many preachers who claim to be reformed. They claim to hold to these doctrines. And yet they say, I just cannot preach the doctrine of election. Too controversial. It will be harmful for the church. Brothers and sisters, you cannot preach the scriptures faithfully if you're not going to preach the doctrine of election. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Look at writing the opening of the letter. Robert Yarbrough, he says, in broad biblical perspective, few concepts are more basic to the identity of God's people than being chosen by God. ABCs of Christian life. God chose you, you did not choose Him. ABCs. You were only able to choose God because He chose you first. I'm telling you, the, the Lord Jesus, Paul, and all the other biblical authors were not ashamed or embarrassed of the doctrine of election. No. Actually, when you understand the doctrine of sin, when you have a, a biblical understanding of how sin has affected, infected, defected you, your only hope is that God would be a God of mercy and grace and have compassion on some people. Joe Beakey and Ismaili, they write the following about the doctrine of election. The crown jewel of the doctrine of God's sovereignty is His election of those whom He will save by grace. Election is one side of God's predestination of all people to either salvation by grace or damnation according to justice. Like a diamond reflecting the sunlight, election sparkles with God's glory shining from Jesus Christ. And then He says, out of this fertile Ground grows the tree of life that Christ is for His people by His death and resurrection. From this fount springs the river of all the Holy Spirit's blessings that sanctifies us in this life and will glorify us in the age to come. All saving grace begins with divine election. So be not ashamed, but rejoice in this glorious doctrine. That God has in His mercy, His great mercy, chosen some people to be vessels of grace. And it's amazing that Paul is actually calling these Christians in Crete. <laughs> these Cretan Christians, he's calling them the elect of God. Paul is literally placing those Cretan Christians in the story of God. Following the loss of Eden with Adam and Eve, redemption is always linked, always connected to the election of a people. There is a chosen line, elected line. So, for example, Abraham, he's called an elected of God, chosen. For I have chosen, I have known him, that he may commend his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Genesis 18, 19. So Abraham is known as God's elect. The whole nation of Israel 
is also known as God's elect, God's chosen. So Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has elected you, has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So Abraham, Israel, David is known as God's elect. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 16, verses 10 and 12, we, we read when Nathan comes and, and here, And Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord, look at that, has not chosen this. So you think about there is Samuel, Jesse, He's bringing all his sons that it's like, oh, yes, it's going to be this one. No, that's not the chosen one. That's not the chosen one. That's not the chosen one until David comes. And then he is the chosen one of the Lord. Not only David, but Zion itself that embodies the whole people of God. So Psalm 132, 13 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And now it's inconceivable that Paul would add those Cretan Christians to this whole theology of election. He's placing those Greek Christians in the island of Crete, who were well known for their immorality. He's placing them in the story of God. As if they were, Paul is saying, you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be part of God's glorious drum of salvation. By placing those Christians in Crete, in the drama of God's story, Paul wants them to be impacted by this narrative. They need to stop being impacted by the story of Crete and the mythology of Crete. They need to be impacted by the story of the gospel. They are people that belong to God. And God has these people since before the foundation of the world. And we too as Christians, we need to be impacted by this story. The Old Testament is our story. Belongs to us. We are part of God's elect. And so many Christians, sadly, they are being affected by their stories when they were a little kid. So you, you meet Christians where the story that affects their life is the story when they were 8, 9, 10 years old. Or when they were in their 20s. Stop. Let the gospel story impact your life. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation, and you're part of this beautiful drama that must be affecting your life, helping you realize where you are in God's plan of redemption. So that's what Paul is doing to the Cretans and to us. And you know that when he calls them the elect of God, this election, this election is unconditional. There was nothing. Nothing that they did to deserve election. Amen? There's nothing that we can bring that says, Do you see, God elected me because look at what I have done. Look at my background. No. We were elected, chosen by sovereign mercy. And look at with me to Titus chapter 3. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. 
Because Paul now explains that this election is unconditional. And he says in verses, starting verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Look at that. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us because of works, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, unconditional election. You are saved by His mercy. Paul is going to tell us in verse 2 that this promise of the gospel of saving people was made before the ages began. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Meaning, before you were born, before you did anything good or evil, God had already planned this whole glorious story of salvation. But it's important for us and for the Christians in Crete, the, the doctrine of election is a doctrine that affects our lives. To be God's elect is to be God's beloved. It cannot separate. To be God's elected or chosen ones is to be God's beloved people. So Paul says in Colossians 3.12, Put on then as God's what? Elect, holy, and beloved. If you are elect... You are beloved and you are holy. They are all together. To be elect is to be loved. And to be loved is to be holy. To be consecrated to the Lord. And the Christians in Crete, they must understand that because God has elected them, has set His love upon them, they must live a different life now. They must live a life that reflects the life of God's elect. Every time that God chooses someone to be saved, every, you go through the story of the Scriptures, and all the elect of God, they have a calling to be a different people. So Paul says that in Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined or elected. And look how He predestined us for, to be conformed to the image of His Son. So election, predestination, leads to conformity into Christ's likeness. A different life. Or Paul tells the Ephesians. Ephesians 1.4 Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He elected us to do what? To be blameless and holy. Election is inseparable from a life of holiness you have heard people saying oh if i'm predestined if i was elected so why why do this why obey the lord i'll be saved anyways and that will show that you were never saved because they lacked his they're saved to walk in holiness that's the mark the clearest evidence of election in someone's life is a life that's sinless that's growing to christ's likeness That's why Paul tells the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3, election must be impacting, affecting, and transforming our lives. As you read the whole 
sentence of Paul in chapter 3 of Colossians. He says, put on then as God's elect, holy and beloved. And then he tells us what we're supposed to be doing as God's elect people. Not be sitting around doing nothing. No, he tells us that we are supposed to put on, to dress with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all this, put on love. So he goes on to tell us that what the elect, the chosen ones are supposed to be doing. And it is a life of holiness. And those Christians in Crete, and for us today, we must be mindful that if we are, we hold, we treasure the doctrine of election, we must also be showing through our lives that we are the elect of God by a life of holiness, consecration. Amen? And also, as we are thinking about the churches in Crete, we know that there were false teachers. And some of these false teachers were teaching that they needed to go back to obeying the law of Moses. As if to be God's elect, you need to come under the yoke of Moses. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. You are elect because of God's mercy. You dare not to try to make yourself an elect of God by obeying the law that these false teachers are teaching you. So it's a beautiful doctrine for that church in Crete that the Lord had chosen some of those depraved, Cretans to be part of his fold. Even in dark Crete, the good shepherd had his elect. That they need to hear God's voice to come into his fold. And that's why Titus, Titus, keep preaching and raise up men who will be preaching the sound doctrine. Because of the elect that is in the island in Crete. And then he continues. And we see here this beautiful connection between Faith, God's elect, knowledge of the truth. Election and knowledge of the truth and faith are all inseparable. Because there is absolutely no point in being elect and not having faith or loving the truth. The fact is the elect will believe and they will believe because they will treasure the truth of the gospel. It's all connected, as Paul is telling us here. It's amazing because sometimes we, we read and, and we forget that the mind of the Lord are orchestrating these words, putting these words together, and they have a lot of logic and coherence as these words are placed together. Faith, election, knowledge of the truth, they all walk hand in hand. And Paul says here in verse 1, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of what? The truth. The truth. What is the truth? Especially if you read the, the letters of Paul, you know that the truth is speaking of the gospel, the gospel message. For Paul, the truth is the gospel. Truth here does not refer to general truths. All right, we have truths about Men, about women, we have truth about creation, we have truth about sexuality, we have truth about science, we have truth about chemistry, we have truth about mathematics, we have truth about chemistry. And all these subjects are, are I'm not putting them down, it's important to have truth in all these subjects, but that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, you know, I know a lot of people here in America, very conservative, very conservative. They love, they love the truth. They defend the truth about keeping the marriage between one man and one woman. And we would say, Amen. Many conservative Christians in America who hold the truth about the right place of government in our lives. They treasure the truth about the evils of abortion. The truth about true sexuality. And yet they will perish in hell for all eternity because they never embrace the truth of the gospel. So you know and I know a lot of people who love the truth in certain aspects of our lives. But they do not love the truth of the gospel. And that's what matters the most. And that's what Paul is talking about here. The knowledge. The knowledge of the truth. To know the truth is to love the truth. It's to treasure the truth. This knowledge is not just intellectual assessment. But it refers to an affectionate embracement of the truth. The truth is to be known, treasured, loved, applied. Because we know that there is a knowledge of the truth that even demons have. Right? Demons have a knowledge of the truth. Satan has a knowledge of the truth. Lost people have a knowledge of the truth. So there is a knowledge of the truth. That's not what Paul is talking about here. There is a knowledge of the truth that will be rebuked by Jesus on the last day when he will say, Oh, you claim to know the truth, but I don't know you. So this knowledge that Paul is talking about here is treasuring the gospel, loving the gospel, letting the gospel kill ourselves so that we may live in Christ. And to know the truth also means to reject falsehood. You cannot treasure the truth and at the same time keep embrace lies and falsehood. Amen? And that's a danger that the churches in Crete and the churches in Salem are facing. Trying to hold to the truth and at the same time entertain, endorse, little by little, accept lies. No, no, no. To knowledge of the truth means kicking out, rejecting the lies. And the false teachings. That's why the psalmist says, Let those who love the Lord what? Yeah, hate evil. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. Let those who have knowledge of the truth reject falsehoods and lies. And then Paul continues, and now he's going to show us that this knowledge of the truth is not, is not just mental, intellectual assessment, but it is something much more impactful. So he tells us in the end of verse 1, he says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, what? Yes, which accords, that leads to godliness. And godliness, as I said in our first sermon in Titus, is a key word throughout the book. The word is not going to be repeated over and over again, but it's a key theme Paul is going to use a different expression for godliness, and that is good works. Because godliness is inseparable from good works. Godliness is manifested through good works. Okay? 
So what is a godly person? A godly person is a person who acts beautifully. The works are beautiful, good works. So Paul, for example, look in Titus, and you can see how this aspect of godliness, good works are going to be repeating here. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. It says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Or chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of what? Good works. Good works. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for what? Good works. Godliness. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every, what? Good work. Verse 5. He saved us not because of what? Works. Works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. And now, verse 14, he finishes the letter also emphasizing godliness, good works. And let our people learn to devote themselves to what? good works so you see how godliness is a massive theme through the book of titus godliness will be manifest through the good works of god's people and note with me the unbreakable chain that there must be in the life of the true christian god's chosen people they're going to love the truth and the truth will do what sanctify them godliness godly living That's why Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as God's people embrace the truth, love the truth, treasure the truth, the truth sets us free to be godlier. So there is this beautiful connection between God's people treasuring the truth of the gospel and the gospel setting them free to walk in holiness, doing good works, living godly lives. And to be godly, this whole theme of godliness is something that Paul emphasizes a lot, especially in the pastoral letters. So, for example, if you turn with me to 1 Timothy, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. What else? Godly and dignified in every way. Now turn to First Timothy, right there, chapter 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, what? 
godliness godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Look at chapter 6, starting verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now turn to Second Timothy, chapter 3. Verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, uh, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeaceable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power avoid such people and it's not only paul but peter also turn with me to second peter second peter that is after titus after hebrews james they come to peter go to second peter Peter says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellency. Do you see godliness connected with what? Knowledge. Knowledge of Him. Knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 5 through 8. Still Second Peter 1. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with... You see the connection between knowledge leading to godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are in yours and, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now chapter 3, last one here, verses 11 through 12. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? So we see that the Bible emphasizes a lot godliness. Right? You just, a, a very simple survey here of these three letters, you can see how much the Bible talks about godliness. Paul says that godliness in, in Titus, we read that it's the fruit of the knowledge of the truth. What is the truth? The gospel. And the gospel is about a person, Jesus Christ. So we know that godliness is inseparable from whom? Jesus Christ. There is no godliness apart from a union with Jesus Christ. That's why he says that they, they, 
appear to be godly, but actually they deny the power of the gospel with their lives. So the gospel is ultimately a person, the Lord Jesus, and godliness is the fruit of our union and love for Jesus Christ. I love what George Knight, he writes, he says, the dynamic force and reality for a true Eusebia, godliness, is none other than Christ Jesus and His saving work in the heart of believers, without which any profession is merely a form lacking this power. So we want to be a godly church, amen? There is no godliness apart from a vital living union with Jesus Christ. Cultivate your union with Christ and you will grow in godliness. So Paul tells us this knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. And here we see the word Eusebia. I like how Robert Mouse translate defines godliness. He says that godliness is the total commitment of one's life, the total commitment of one's life to God. Ah, sounds slavery language here. With emphasis on the practical outworking of that faith. So that's why I said that Eusebia is inseparable or godliness is inseparable from good works because it's visible. You cannot say that person is godly if you don't see the works of Christ through that person. There are a lot of people who, who play the godly person. Right? But unless you can see Christ living in that person by the way they speak, act, think, then there's no godliness. Godliness is very similar to the concept in the Old Testament of the fear of the Lord. So sometimes if you get the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you're going to see that where there is the fear of the Lord is actually use the word Eusebia, godliness. You think about the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is a covenantal expression that speaks of the worshippers, total reverence, obedience, and love for the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a covenantal expression that speaks of the worshippers, total commitment to the Lord with reverence, obedience, love. So godliness, fear of the Lord, they're inseparable. And they speak of a life that's totally committed to the Lord. That's why Paul says, we read in, in, in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Will be persecuted. Why? Because they are wholly bound to Jesus. Fully consecrated to Jesus. And the world hates Jesus. Therefore, as you live godly lives, you will be persecuted. So we see this paradox. Because you might think, wait a second, Google. In the first sermon you said that godliness is an adornment that attracts people to Christ. Amen. There is this paradox where the cross is something beautiful for some, and yet something nasty for others. And the same with godly living. Godly living for some will be the aroma, will be the cologne, the perfume that attracts them to Christ. 
and at the same time your godly living for others will be what will increase their hate for Christ and for you. That's why Paul says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one group, a fragrance from death to death. You stink. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So godliness will be the cologne that will, the perfume that will adorn you. That some will say, I want that. And others will say, I want to kill you because of that. So John Lensman, he, he, he summarizes the teaching of godliness. And I think it's very profitable how he writes. He says, Godliness is not just an inward disposition, but an outward demeanor that is central to all aspects of the Christian life and ministry. Knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Yet godliness is something that requires training, teaching, and vigorous pursuit. Godliness is not an easy pursuit. He says those who want to live godly lives will be persecuted. Yet it is this very godliness that holds promise for both the present life and the life to come. Godliness with contentment gives one great gain, gain and power. So, brothers and sisters, think about the whole sentence. Paul, slave, apostle, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and the knowledge of the truth that leads, that accords with godliness. Godliness adorns, beautifies the whole gospel truth that God is for us. When the message of the gospel comes unglued, separated from godliness, faith shatters. Brian Chapel wrote. And you need to remember that salvation is not just escaping from hell. Some people think that salvation is just escaping from hell. No. By no means. Salvation is a process where God is making His people more and more like Himself. Godly. There is no salvation without sanctification. That's what the Bible says. Oh, but I thought that you believe in the doctrine of election. Amen. But remember, the elect will grow in holiness. The elect is called to be more and more like Christ. So the author of Hebrews says that there is no salvation without sanctification, without holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that's why Paul wants the older men in the church, the older women, the younger men, the younger women, the leaders... To be clothed with Eusebia. Put on godliness. Make the gospel attractive by your lives. And the last passage. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We saw that earlier, but let's read again. And you see all these themes that we were looking at this morning. Now coming to this passage. Paul says, understand this, that in the last days, verse 1. There will come times of difficulty. 
That's the days we are living. Since the coming of Christ, the ascension of Christ, we have the last days. It's just getting worse and worse. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, and he keeps giving the list. And then he says, having the appearance of what? Godliness, but by denying its power. Avoid such people. Oh, wow, Paul, you're so harsh. That's what the Lord says. Avoid such people. For among the, the then are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. And look at that. Always learning and never able to arrive where? At a knowledge of the truth. Always learning. Always learning. But never loving. Never embracing. Never dedicating themselves to Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, there is a, a powerful connection between the knowledge of truth and godliness. A beautiful library, all sorts of theological books. Beautiful library. Theological degrees all over the wall. Hundreds of Bible studies. The listening of many podcasts and sermons. All the theological understanding that you have. All these good things. If they're not creating in you a life of godliness, it's all worthless. All worthless. And Paul commands us to train ourselves in godliness. Train yourself in godliness. Put the phone away. You have been spending too much time in your phone. That will not help you to be more godly. Computer, hobbies, movies, put away because these things will not help you to grow in godliness. Brothers and sisters, it's time. It's time for us to let the truth, the truth of God, be treasured in our hearts and be manifested in a life of godliness, more and more like Christ. So, we finish here, verse 1. And please don't start making math of, okay, we had two sermons, one verse, that will take us. Now, I plan to cover a little bit more as we go through. Uh, but here it is, verse 1. We see Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And we, we emphasize eight words here. Very powerful words. The first one, Paul is a slave, and there's application for our church. Our church must be a church of slaves of Christ. And I praise the Lord for the heart of slave that there is in this congregation. People who love serving. And let us continue growing in being more and more slaves of Christ. Not only that, but Paul is an apostle. And there is application for our church. Our church must be an apostolic church. What does he mean? We stand on the teaching of the apostles. We don't need a new revelation. No, thank you. Jesus calling. No, thank you. Jesus has called us in his book. The shack. No, thank you. We don't need the heavens for real. We don't need new revelation. We need apostolic teaching. As a, an apostolic church, we must be going. Christ commanded us to go, Matthew 28. 
And also we must understand as an apostolic church, we will suffer. We will suffer. Not only that, the church is to be marked by faith. Faith, that's what Paul said, that he is called an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Meaning we are a church that must embrace Jesus. Remember faith, amen. Jesus is mine. Jesus is ours. And as a church, we embrace Jesus. And consequently, what do we need to do? Remember the two sides, faith and repentance. We must be a repenting church. A church that's believing, 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 and repenting, repenting, repenting. We are God's elect. And that must create in us deep humility. God chose us. God elected us. And also must lead us to a life of holiness. Knowledge of the truth. We must be a church marked by the treasuring of the truth. A church that loves the truth and is willing to contend for the truth. And fight for the truth. And lastly, our church to be marked by godliness. People must see in us as a church this total devotion, total commitment in one's life to God. And I pray that the members of this church will be known as godly, not only here, but outside the church. At your workplace, in your neighborhood, among others, that you will be godly, showing total devotion to Christ. And sometimes that will cause people to hate you. And at the same time, will cause people to be attracted to the Lord Jesus. Amen? So, we cannot do that on our own. We need Jesus to help us. And for those who are here and you do not know the truth, I pray that the Lord today will smash your heart open. That you'd embrace the truth of the gospel, run to Him, be embraced by Jesus, embrace Jesus, say, Amen, I believe in Jesus Christ. And from there on, live a life of service to this glorious Master that we have. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your kindness towards us. And Lord, as we keep drilling in this front yard, I pray they would continue being gracious to us and giving us treasures, abundance of treasures from Your Word. And what we have here is so, so precious. Money cannot buy what we have in your word, Lord. So thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for being kind to us. And I pray that this word would bear much fruit in our lives. For the glory of your name.